Welcome to episode 135 of This Week in Linux, your weekly source for Linux GNUs. From the Destination Linux Network, I'm Michael Tunnell. And if you're new to the show, this is the podcast that will keep you up to date with what's going on in the Linux world, and I'll give you my take as a 20-year-plus Linux user. Coming up on this week's episode, Red Hat announces new updates for the CentOS situation and that you can now get RHEL at no cost. That's right. We're also going to be talking about a new piece of hardware from the Raspberry Pi Foundation called the Pico. And then we'll check out some more enterprisey goodness from SUSE. And we've got some updates related to running Linux on the Apple M1 Mac, which is really interesting. And we've also got some app news related to graphics tools like Inkscape and Krita, plus a not-so-ideal app update from Google for Chromium. We'll talk about that later. And also later in the show, we'll discuss some distro news, including Linux Mint having a big screensaver bug issue, and Ubuntu announcing their plans for Ubuntu 20.21.04 in regards to GNOME 40. We've got all that and so much more coming up right now on This Week in Linux. Before you get started this week, I just want to let you know, for those who are not aware, that this show is streamed live every Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time or 1800 UTC. So join us in the live chat room to discuss all the latest Linux news each week with me and the other Twillers. Yep, Twillers. I'm going with it. And uh, you can go to dlnlive.com to join us live. The, the, the Twitch chat and also the video is going to be there uh, every week. So be sure to bookmark that, dlnlive.com. And we also have uh, dlnlive.com being used for the Destination Linux podcast, which is also now live every week on Sundays at 1 p.m. Eastern or 1800 UTC. We did that on purpose because it's just easier for me to keep track of what I need to say if it's both the same time on each of those days. So there you go. Bookmark DLNlive.com and also check out the DLN store by going to DLNstore.com and you can find all of the great stuff for swag like this Linux for Linux is Everywhere t-shirt. And also there's a This Week in Linux t-shirt and a bunch of other stuff, including mugs, hoodies, stickers, and so much more. So go to DLNstore.com and the very last plugin, plug-in, the very last plug I'm going to do in this show is the DLN store. Nope, is the DLN <laughs> is the DLN forum. So go to DLNforum.com to join us and have a bunch of discussions throughout the week. Whether you can make it live or not, there's a lot of great stuff there. So go to DLNforum.com. First in the show this week, we got some great news from Red Hat for a lot of people who are or kind of worried about what to do based on the CentOS restructuring. For those who are not aware, um, this week they announced that individual users will now be able to use RHEL, aka Red Hat Linux, Red Hat Enterprise Linux, for no cost. That's right, users can now get RHEL for free. We'll get to the details of this news in a bit, but first let's give a quick recap for those who are not aware of the news. Uh, I won't be going into extensive detail, as I've already done that on episode 129 of Twill, and I plan to dive even deeper into in further on, on my YouTube channel, which, of course, if you aren't subscribed to that, you should be to get information and in all the great videos that I make, and a little bit biased on that statement, but, you know, it is what it is. Uh, so here's a brief recap. On December 8th, 2020, Red Hat made an announcement of restructuring CentOS to no longer be a downstream rebuild of RHEL, but instead to become a continuous delivery style upstream branch for Red Hat Enterprise Linux. 
This was a very controversial decision in many ways, and arguably this was not handled well in regards to the timing of things, but, you know, there's that sort of stuff. So, for example, users believe that CentOS 8 would be available until 2029, and with the restructuring of CentOS, the support was cut down to the end of 2021, so some people were not happy. Uh, so people who already made the transition from 7 to 8, those were probably the most uh, annoyed by this, but a lot of people also had many comments on that. And we talked about that in episode 129, and also uh, I'll be talking about that in a future video where I go much more in-depth because there's uh, a lot of stuff to do, and I wanted to do a full in-depth breakdown on the YouTube and Odyssey channels for it, so I'll be doing that sometime soon, probably this week, so be sure to subscribe on that. So anyway, back to the news for this week. Red Hat has brought a new solution that will make a lot of people happy and possibly even more excited than using CentOS previously. And that is that, as I said, they're going to be doing it for no cost. So starting February 1st of 2021, Rail will be available at no cost for small production workloads. Up to 16 systems are, go are covered in the new program. Red Hat is also expanding the availability of the developer subscriptions to teams as well as individual users. So subscribing Rail customers can add an entire dev team to the developer subscription program at no cost, which allows the entire team to use Red Hat Cloud Access for simplified develop or deployment and maintenance of Rail on well-known cloud providers like AWS, Google Cloud, Microsoft Azure, etc., a bunch of other stuff like that. And Red Hat is calling it a no-strings program. This isn't a sales program, they say, in no sales representative will follow up on this. It is just the they're just rolling it out for more companies to be able to do this for their developers, which is very cool news as well. In addition to having the free access of rail, which is really cool. We'll get to that in a second. The team aspects of being able to do it. One of the things that people were annoyed in terms of like the developer program is that it was kind of limited and they have expanded it significantly for uh, companies who want to deploy uh, a lot of servers and have a bunch of their developers all in, involved in that is really cool that they're doing that. Anyway, I know there are quite a few questions related to this and I'm going to answer as many as possible. So first of all, will I need a license for these small production setups? The answer to that question is yes, you will, but the license is free and easily renewable. It's actually just gonna be a clicking of a button. Um, so. The next question is what is the duration of this license and how long will or you know how long will it last? The individual developer subscription is currently set up as a 1-year subscription. They say here's a quote from Red Hat, renewals will be a simple process as as close to clicking a button as possible. We have no intent to end this program and we've sent we've set it up to be sustainable and we want to keep giving the users that want to use Rail access to do so. And the next question is, if, if, if it is free, why do I need a license? And understandably, that's a question that a lot of people are going to be asking. And essentially, it's legal reasons. But for more specific breakdown, Red Hat did address this in the announcement. They say that the primary reason we need a subscription term is because it is legally difficult to offer unlimited terms globally. And, we, and, and as new laws come into effect, for example, the GDPR, we need to be able to update the terms and conditions. And this is similar to how our customers buy Red Hat subscriptions for fixed terms, not in perpetuity. So that totally makes sense. I get why they would do it. And especially if they're making it simple to uh, renew it every time, it, you know, it's not that big of an issue. And legally speaking, it does make sense that they're going to do that. The next question that I wanted to cover is, is this new structure a reaction to the backlash of the CentOS news? And the answer to that is, well, kind of complicated because it, it's yes and no, sort of. 
because uh, they had plans to do this already. Uh, because we talked about it on Destination Linux episode. We had an interview with Mike McGrath, the vi- vice president of engineering from Red Hat. And we talked about this kind of thing, and he said that this was coming. So they were planning on doing this already. But, um, you know, it wasn't ready at the time because they're getting all the legal, you know, crossing the I's and dotting the T's and that sort of stuff. I mean, that's you shouldn't you shouldn't do that. That's not how that works. But anyway, so they they also already had a developer program running since 2015. It has been possible to get rail access as a developer since 2015, but it was somewhat somewhat limited in how you could do it until now, which is the, like the expanding of the team-based structure and that sort of stuff. So it's very cool. Uh, anyway, this is some very big news on the CentOS drama front as well. It is something that is very interesting to a lot of people, and I personally was fine with using streams or stream the CentOS version of because that was the you know I don't do a ton of production workloads, and I realize that my needs are not every not the same thing that everybody needs to do. So I understand why it's annoying to people. Uh, however, now that we're having full rel and not needing to use CentOS stream at all. I'm very excited about that. I think that is very cool. And I think a lot of people are also going to be excited about that. And uh, I understandably, the people who have big uh, deployment stuff, uh, it's not going to be, it's not going to solve their problem. It's more of like the people who want to get started using Rail, learn and get into that ecosystem and be able to deploy stuff and try it out and that sort of stuff. And they give you 16 up to 16 different systems can use this uh, this small production workload license. And that is really cool because for people who are doing small business and stuff like that, then they could probably you know use less than that or whatever. And if they're going to a big deployment, it makes sense that you would you know charge for that sort of stuff. Uh, so I think this is a, a nice stopgap in terms of people who are having issues with CentOS and you know going into the upstream uh, continuous delivery style versus the old style of having it being a rebuild. But also I think there is still a place for a rebuild distribution for rel because there are some you know scenarios where you need a lot more than 16. And there are some um, rumors related to Red Hat maybe addressing more of these things in the future with some more updates. but at the moment those are just kind of rumors. so we'll see what happens there. So again, I know my opinion is not going to be the norm in this topic, but I am curious what you think of this recent announcement. Does this change how you feel about the restructuring of CentOS? Let me know your thoughts in the comments or on the forum at dealinforum.com. And if you want more information about this topic, then be sure to check the links in the show notes. And also be sure to subscribe to the channel for the Red Hat CentOS video that is coming out very soon. Up next in the show, let's talk about the Raspberry Pi Foundation because they have announced a new microcontroller and it's called the Raspberry Pi Pico. And this is basically their own silicon. So they've been working for several years to get to this this point. And a quote from James Adam from Raspberry Pi says, whether you're looking for a standalone board for deep embedded development or a companion to your Raspberry Pi computer, or you're taking your first steps with a microcontroller, this is the board for you. It's built on an, a Raspberry Pi or RP2040 microcontroller chip uh, consisting of a dual-core ARM Cortex M0 Plus processor running at 133 megahertz, uh, 264 kilobytes, that's right, kilobytes of internal RAM, support for up to 16 megabytes of off-chip flash, and there's also a wide range of flexible I.O. options, including I2C, SPI, and also a uniquely structured programmable IPO, or no, PIO, or programmable I.O. 
The 264 kilobyte internal RAM and the 16 megabytes of off-chip flash storage does not seem like a lot. It doesn't. It seems like a very small amount, but it's because it's a microcontroller and it's built. It's meant to be used in other things to be able to kind of like sort of an Arduino. If you're not familiar, if you're familiar with that sort of stuff, it's kind of in that that realm. And it offers a bunch of different features. It's got 30 GPIO pins. It has LEDs to work with. It also has SPI two SPI controllers, two I2C controllers. It has uh, eight. A Raspberry Pi programmable I.O. P.I.O. state machines. It has support for USB 1.1 controlling, and it also has a storage of up to uh, two megabytes of flash memory. What the is it's so that so it, by default it has two megabytes. It has the option of doing up to 16 on the off chip flash and that sort of stuff. It also has a bunch of other cool stuff. And if it's more of like someone who wants to build things rather than a ras like a Raspberry Pi. The typical Raspberry Pi is a product that you have a full computer all in one sort of thing. And this is meant to be utilized in other things or for small projects or like for doing a specific task in a very minimal way. And that's similar to what the Raspberry Pi Pico does. There's also a lot of third-party kits that are being uh, already announced or some are already available. You know, there's stuff from Arduino. There's stuff from uh, Adafruit, SparkFun, Pimoroni. I don't know if that's how you say it right, or, I don't know if that's that, but that's a fun thing to say. The Raspberry Pi Pico is on sale right now for just $4 per unit. And that is a good deal for microcontroller. It's it's there's similar prices in most of the time in most microcontrollers, but it's, it has uh, a lot of potential and it has pr uh, programming uh, support for uh, an SDK for both C and C++ and also the micro python for those who want to use python and it's it's really interesting if you want to learn more about this i'll have a link to their announcement on the raspberry pi website at raspberry.org in the show notes below so check that out and yeah i look forward to trying this out i have actually never been into the microcontroller stuff but i've always wanted to because you know it's just kind of cool to, cool to build stuff but i was always the the lazy type of getting a raspberry pi and just putting stuff in appliance style on there but you know I do want to try with some stuff like this, get an Arduino, get a, some Adafruit stuff, so maybe some Raspberry Pi. Maybe I'll do some stuff on the, on the channel for that. Um, you know, you, just, you can go along with me as I terribly use these things and destroy them because that's probably what's going to happen. And I think that might be some fun videos. So anyway, check it, you can check out the links in the show notes for the more information about the Raspberry Pi Pico. Up next in the show, we're going to talk about some more enterprisey goodness, and that is SUSE has announced uh, some more plans related to their changes that are coming to OpenSUSE and the SLE, and the SLE uh, relationship. So there's been a, like a lot of changes in the past couple of years related to how OpenSUSE and SLE work, and this blog post kind of explains it more specific. Actually, it explains it very well. It's got diagrams and everything. So if you want to learn more about like the like every intricate piece check out the blog post. Uh, but I also have a series of explaining how they make the SLE, the SUSE Linux Enterprise or SLE, how they make that product. And they go through the release management, the schedule for the SLE releases. Uh, they also go through uh, this the, the description of how it integrates with OpenSUSE and that sort of stuff. So if you want to check out the full series, I'll have it linked in the show notes. But just a quick rundown. So the way that OpenSUSE and SUSE worked previously so like many years ago, they were completely separate things. 
Then they decided to start working together in the main fast development core. So like the factory stuff has uh, always been kind of used for both of them. But then they started doing OpenSUSE Tumbleweed. And OpenSUSE Tumbleweed is their rolling uh, bleeding edge release. Although bleeding edge is a, a phrase that doesn't really fit OpenSUSE Tumbleweed because of how it's structured. I, I would say that bleeding edge would be more like using factory. That would definitely be bleeding edge. But um, the way that it works, let's just break it down. So factory is a project for development code stream and all of the SUSE distributions. It's basically the immediate source for OpenSUSE Tumbleweed. And then that eventually goes into OpenSUSE Tumbleweed, then into Leap and Slee and that stuff. So it starts at factory and factory is the development, you know, testing bed. And once everything has been testing or tested, they do like they use OpenQA, which is the quality assurance project that SUSE made, which is really cool. Uh, that once they get that that constant flow of code stabilized and do they do snapshots with OpenQA and they create those snapshots for OpenSUSE Tumbleweed. So they go from factory to Tumbleweed. And the next thing they do uh, previously was they would go to a different structure of having a, re a build for OpenSUSE Leap and a build for Slee. This new plans that they have announced is related to a, a consolidation and integration of those two things. So instead of having a build for both of them separately, they have a new build that is kind of separate in that they work in parallel, but at the same time, the vast majority of the code for OpenSUSE Leap is actually SLEE. So you can look at it as a, you know, a ladder. It goes from factory to tumbleweed, well, it's a reverse ladder, I guess, but factory, then down to tumbleweed, then down to uh, Slee, and then down to OpenSUSE Leap. And in between uh, OpenSUSE Leap and Slee, there is the Package Hub, which is a community-ran thing for enterprise improvements and changes and that sort of stuff. So it's really interesting the way they did because uh, just a few years ago, there was no tumbleweed, there was no leap, and it was completely separate. And they started com combining things together. And, you know, uh, I think this is really cool because during that combination, it, it eliminated a lot of the extra work that was being done. There was a little bit of uh, duplication of effort. And this, uh, this effort to introduce tumbleweed as being the main distribution for the main uh, source for all of it was a way to integrate them together and make it more consolidated and make it more efficient and make the development easier for both ends. And then doing this, this more consolidation here when they make Slee and OpenSUSE Leap being very close to each other in the sense that OpenSUSE Leap now uses Slee packages like directly. So it takes the Slee packages and then do its own change, like changing the branding from uh, Slee to OpenSUSE and that sort of stuff. And I'm happy to see this transition because it's it's very interesting structure for SUSE and OpenSUSE to do. I mean, it's really cool because essentially this interconnected workflow is basically putting SUSE and OpenSUSE as upstreams and downstreams to each other. And they kind of already were in a sense, but this is a definite direct comparison, but having this, uh, you know, one central flow of development rather than having the two separate builds of OpenSUSE and SLEE. So I think it's very cool. I think there's a lot of potential for this. I think it's really interesting in terms of like kind of making OpenSUSE Tumbleweed being the, you know, you want everything as fast as possible, then you go to OpenSUSE Tumbleweed, which by the way, ha deserves its own video because it's just, it's very interesting structure of how they have it because it's a rolling distribution that also has 
rollbacks of snapshots and stuff. So you have like this fallback parachute type of thing, which is really interesting. Uh, and so we'll talk about that in another video. Uh, but also then they go from that to having OpenSUSE Leap and it sort of being a rebuild, I guess, in a way to SLEE. So it's kind of like an enterprise sort of experience. And it's not necessarily you know, that, but it's, it's pretty close, which is really, really cool. So I think what SUSE is doing is very interesting. I was really happy when they first announced this whole consolidation a few years ago. And now that they're kind of getting to the full, like the, the final stage of doing this huge consolidation of all of the different branches into a single flow, I think this is fantastic for everyone who uses SUSE, all their customers. And I think that the community could you know benefit a lot from you know checking out OpenSUSE as well. Whether you want to use a stable thing like Slee or Leap, or you want to use Tumbleweed, I think there's a lot of cool stuff they're doing here. And if you want to learn more about this, I'll have links in the show notes for the blog post specifically related to this uh, structure because they do break down the previous structure and the new structure, and they give you like diagrams to make it very clear. In just in case it's not clear here. Uh, you can check that out and also check out the full series where they explain how they make SLEE, which is a really interesting read. I have links to both of those in the show notes below. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by DigitalOcean and their new app platform. DigitalOcean's app platform service is a solution to build modern cloud-native apps. Use a simple, intuitive, and visually rich experience to rapidly build, deploy, manage, and scale apps with their app platform. They have support for multiple languages, including uh, Node.js, Python, Go, PHP, Ruby, static sites. They also have support for Docker and container images. It has high scalability with zero infrastructure management, what does that mean? Well, you simply point to your GitHub or your GitLab repository and let the app platform do all the heavy lifting for you. It handles the infrastructure for you like the app runtimes and the dependencies so that you can push code to production in just a few clicks. Secure apps automatically as well. They create, manage, and renew your SSL certificates and also protect your apps from DDoS attacks. You can run code with little to no customization on the app platform because it uses cloud-native standards and automatically analyzes your code, creates clusters, and runs them on Kubernetes clusters. As a listener of the This Week in Linux podcast and a member of the DLN community, then you can get free access to the app platform by going to do.co slash DLN to get started with that free $100 credit. That's right. You get a $100 credit on the app platform when you go to do.co slash DLN. Again, go to do.co slash DLN to get started with your $100 free credit on DigitalOcean's new app platform service. And we want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of This Week in Linux. In previous episodes of This Week in Linux, or Twill, we talked about Linux on Apple M1 Macs and how the words work being put into this effort. And apparently there have been multiple projects working on this because we have another one from a company called Corellium, or Corellium. I'm not sure how you're supposed to say that, but I'm going to go with Corellium. And I, it is fun to say, by the way. Anyway, so Corellium CTO Chris Wade announced on Twitter that they say that Linux is now completely usable on the Mac M1 Mini. So booting from USB with a full Ubuntu desktop, network works with a USB-C dongle, and they say that updates include support for USB, I2C, and Dart. And they also are going to have some changes being pushed on their GitHub, and they also will have a tutorial on there as well for you to check out if you want to. 
Now, to be clear, it's not a perfect port yet. Uh, there's not any hardware acceleration. There's no uh, graphic cores uh, support. It doesn't have machine learning core support. And um, so it's not really made for uh, everyone and it's it's not made for advanced uh, advanced users. So it can't run games or machine learning and that sort of stuff. But in the announcement, Corellium provided complete instructions for booting a full Ubuntu Linux desktop uh, on Apple M1 from a USB stick. And this is really cool. And also, to be clear, for those who are familiar with Corellium, uh, and for those who are not, I'll you know, explain this, but Corellium is known for its uh, Corellium hypervisor on ARM, which is kind of like a virtual machine. If you're not familiar with what a hypervisor is, it's kind of like that. And uh, Corellium hypervisor on ARM is also has the acronym of CHARM, which, by the way, I just wanted to say, well done. Well done on that naming scheme. I like it. Also, this is a type one hypervisor that can be used to run Linux and a virtual machine on bare metal, but they were very sure to be clear about uh, this solution is not using Charm to make this work. The M1 Linux port runs on bare metal. It's based on work done on Corellium's project Sandcastle, and it's a project to get Android and Linux running on iPhones. So Corellium already had a head start on the Linux on M1 process because they had already been working on Linux and Android on ARM devices through iPhone and that sort of stuff. So that is very cool. So let's talk about the status of the project. So binary files and how-to documents are being worked on. For the moment, you have to compile the Linux M1 code yourself. And for networking, you'll also need a USB-C dongle. Uh, work is being done to include better USB and I2C uh, serial connections protocol support. And so far, the following hardware interfaces are working. So they have the Apple uh, UART driver, the SMP driver, the Dart support. Uh, they have... Uh, Apple AIC interrupt controller support, GPIO support, USB Type-C controller support, and things like that. So it's it's still in the process of being developed, but they have already successfully booted the Ubuntu system on the M1 Mac Mini. And in this video version of the show, you'll see that it shows a Ubuntu install having Firefox loaded on it. So it's not just like booted to a terminal or whatever. It's booted to the whole experience. Now, not everything is going to work, of course, as I've said, but it is really cool to see that they're doing it. Uh, so they also say that they're also happy to work with the developers behind the Asahi project as well. So the Asahi Linux project, uh, Asahi, Asahi, I don't know. It's uh, they're, they're, And that's, that's really great because having a collaborative effort between those two projects to make Linux on the M1 Mac is really cool to see. And I hope that that does happen. And I'm just happy to see that these people are working on this because uh, there's been a lot of debate around the M1 Mac and whether we should have Linux support or, you know, whether or not we should it. And I do think that we should because uh, having support on the hardware is necessary in a variety of different scenarios. So the most important thing is that Apple has a lot of power in terms of marketability and mindshare and that sort of stuff. So they're going to be selling a lot of these M1 Macs. Now, at some point, maybe an, a user of Apple M1 Macs decides to, you know, stop using Linux, stop using Mac OS and they want to use Linux. Now, if Linux is not available on the M1 Mac, they'll never have the chance to do so. So having support for Linux on that hardware is is important because it's not just for people who want to help Apple sell devices. I mean, sure, there might be some of those, but that's not really the purpose. It's the purpose of having Linux running on it so that if someone wants to do so, they can. And if we were just to leave it alone, it's not like Apple's going to do it. 
So they would, you know, there'd be a scenario where, you know, right now, a lot of people, a lot of people have switched from Apple to, you know, from macOS to Linux and using their Apple devices because they like the hardware of the Apple devices. So that has happened quite a bit. And it is possible that if we were not to have support, then we would just be cutting off that flow of new users. And I'm happy to see that there are projects, multiple projects, making it possible to have Linux work on the M1 Max. And I think that's a good thing. Let me know what you think in the comments below, because I am curious what you think. And also feel free to leave a comment on the DLN forum by going to dlnforum.com. And if you'd like to learn more about this, I'll have a link to the GitHub for Corellium and as well as their blog posts on their website. Links in the show notes. Up next in the show, let's talk about Inkscape. So Inkscape team has announced a couple of new releases this week. First of all, a new point release with 1.0.2, and also they released a alpha status development edition as 1.1 alpha. For those unfamiliar with Inkscape, Inkscape is a free and open source vector graphics editor, and it is a fantastic vector graphics editor, to be clear. Uh, the 1.0.2 version is most an incremental improvement release with the main focus being on stability and bug fixes. However, there are a couple of new features in this release. First of all, you now uh, can deactivate the zoom function when clicking with the middle mouse button. You can also now prevent accidental canvas rotation, either temporarily or for a document or for all of new Inkscape windows. You can do so uh, by uh, changing the settings based on which shortcut you want to use and that sort of stuff. And it also, just to be clear, canvas rotation is an awesome feature. I am a huge fan of it. Uh, I when, when they announced that they added it, I was so excited because canvas, uh, canvas rotation doesn't seem like it's that important. But when it comes to design, having the ability to uh, rotate the canvas means that it can be more natural when you're using a, a Wacom tablet, for example. So you have a drawing tablet or, you know, because drawing tablets can be used for painting programs or vector graphics or anything in terms of illustrations and stuff because it's really awesome to have those because they have uh, pressure sensitivity and being able to uh, control that in a more natural state so that your your arm is in a, you know, the canvas is moved with the same position that your uh, tablet is, is really cool. And I'm ha I was happy to see that. And I'm also really happy to see uh, that they're improving it because that is always welcomed and making it more customizable for users and how it works is also quite nice. But let's jump into the 1.1 Alpha Edition. This is the main reason that this is on the show this week because I wanted to talk about what's coming up in Inkscape 1.1. So they have a couple of new things. Uh, that I want to talk about first, we got the welcome dialogues so that allows a uh, theme, uh, new document size and file selection uh, directly from the open dialogues window. They also added a couple of cool things. First of all, uh, that they have it's now possible to copy, cut and paste parts of a path with the node tool. This is so great to see because node manipulation is something that makes vector applications as powerful as they are. And being able to quickly duplicate nodes is just awesome. So they also added a uh, improvements to the dialogue docking system. So they've rewritten that completely, which resolves many of the issues with uh, docked dialogues inside of Inkscape. They've also added something that I, I think is just fantastic. And most applications, if you have a lot of features and you have a lot of functionality, you should consider this type of feature called a command palette. Uh, this allows you to hit a shortcut, or in this case with Inkscape, you hit the question mark key. 
And when you hit this shortcut, it will pop up a menu that allows for searching and the use and activation of many functions. So you don't have to use uh, keyboard shortcuts and you don't have to go through menus. You can just activate this command palette, type in what you want, and then boom, it does it. So command palettes are fantastic. Text editors have them. Now Inkscape is getting them and a bunch of other stuff have it. And it is something that I think, well, every application that has any significant amount of features should have. So well done, Inkscape. I am looking forward to that a lot. They've also improved the outline overlay mode. They have this new mode that displays object outlines and their real colors at the same time to be able to easier differentiate different pieces and different objects inside of the canvas. And they're also improving something that, well, I didn't really, well, first of all, they're no longer necessary making it so that you uh, have to remember to click on the export button when you go to the PNG export dialog. So it will automatically save when you click on that, when you activate it. Uh, this is nice and something that kind of has bothered me for a while, but also something that I never really noticed. So it kind of retroactively bothered me now that I see that they fixed it. So it's kind of funny in that sense, in that respect, because it's uh, retrospectively annoying. <laughs> but anyway, it's really awesome that they fixed that because it does, once I realized that that's the thing they're fixing it. I do see it's kind of a slight irritation. It's not a big deal. It's like, it's two seconds, but it's just fun that they're, they're improving that stuff. Even things that I wasn't aware that I wanted fixed. So that's awesome. And also as a reminder, this version is a 1.1, so it's not ready to go yet. It's still in the alpha stage, but I wanted to talk about it for a couple of reasons. One, I'm excited for these new features. There's a lot of cool stuff in here and I just wanted to talk about them, uh, especially that command palette. Fantastic. Love it. Continue to do great stuff like that. Please, Inkscape. But also, secondarily, uh, a friend of the show and developer for Inkscape asked if I would get the word out for people who would want to uh, help testing the latest alpha to make it even better. So, of course, I'm happy to do that because Inkscape is awesome. And any excuse I have to talk about it, I will gladly do so. Uh, so with that said, if you're interested in testing out the 1.1 alpha version of Inkscape to help make it even better, then you'll find links in the show notes below. Up next in the show, let's stick with the graphics editor tools and let's talk about Krita. Because Krita, the team has released Krita 4.4.2 with over 300 changes. This is mainly a bug fix release, though it does have some new features as well. So if you're not familiar, Krita is a professional free and open source painting program. It is made by artists that want to see affordable art tools for everyone. And it, it's used for people who make uh, concept art, texture, uh, illustrations, comics, that sort of stuff. So it's a very, very good application and it is a fantastic painting application actually if you've ever wanted to get into that definitely check out krita it was on the same level as the other painting tools for professional i would say absolutely check it out if you're interested in that it's it's awesome so in this latest release of 4.4.2 they've done a lot of updates to their filters their animations the painting the high dpi support uh, you know the stability and performance overall and that kind of thing uh, but they also have a few highlights related to the new uh, features that i want to talk about so first of all they have support for svg based mesh gradients this can be used for uh, as vector objects which is really cool and it also has compatible with inkscape which is fantastic and they've added support for mesh transforms, which support complex transformations. The mesh transform feature can also be used to create precise transforms. And while I haven't had a chance to use it yet, 
It, it kind of reminds me of the puppet warp transforms that are in other applications, and that is very exciting to see in Krita, so I can't wait to try that out, because if it does work like puppet warp, then awesome. Up next, they have a new gradient fill layer type, which is really cool because it, it makes it easier to create various non-destructive gradients. Uh, also, they added six new brushes in Krita 4.4.2, which complements the new RGBA brush tip feature, which is awesome because RGBA is a, the, the RGB, a lot of people know what that means. It means red, green, blue, but A is for alpha and alpha basically controls the uh, opacity or the transparency of it, which making it, it's just really cool that they have that built in now. And they've also done a lot of other cool stuff like a new paint shape, uh, paste shape style action in the edit menu. It helps you only paste a copied vector shape style into another vector shape, which is really cool. I think that's going to be a game changer because it make a game changer because it will make it easy to do uh, to complete tasks that will require repetitive elements, which is very cool. So anyway, I'm so excited to try out this version of Krita. It's kind of funny how the release of Krita with these small point release style releases, like the 4.4.2 or whatever, they seem to have something hidden in them that's just very cool. This is no exception to that, like the whole uh, mesh, uh, the mesh gradient, uh, the, uh, the like the puppet warp style transforms. Like that's very cool. Uh, uh, if it is puppet warp, I don't know if it is or not, but I, I look forward to testing to find out. Uh, anyway, if you'd like to check out the full announcement blog post, you can find links in the show notes below. And also remember to leave a comment below or on the uh, reply on the forum thread about whether or not you think I sh- uh, you're interested anyway of doing me doing a video about uh, graphic design because I have been doing it for a very long time, so I'm pretty experienced in it. And as well as like breaking down the difference between destructive and non-destructive, and like giving examples of how it all works and that sort of stuff. So anyway, let me know in the comments below or on the forum thread. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by Bitwarden. Get started right now with your free account at bitwarden.com/dln. A password manager is software that allows you to have peace of mind knowing that your online accounts are secure. How does it do that? Well, securing your online accounts is very important because the best security practice for passwords that has been commonly used for years is to have a different password for every account on every website that you sign up to. And sure, that makes sense as a good policy, but without a password manager, that's a very painful thing to do. And Bitwarden solves this by providing tools that store all of your passwords in a secured vault, uh, auto-generate those passwords for you, and even automatically fill in those passwords or on login forms so you don't have to do that, which is amazing. You can have access to your data across multiple types of devices, like your web browser, using your mobile devices, like mobile apps, uh, desktop applications, or even the command line if you want to. Bitwarden seals your private data with end-to-end encryption before it ever leaves your devices, so you know the only person with access to your data is you. Bitwarden is the password manager that I use and trust because in addition to all the great features, it is also 100% open source software. That's right, 100% open source software, which means the features and security of their infrastructure can be vetted and improved by the community, and they don't just stop there. They also bring in third-party security firms to audit their code to make sure it is safe as possible. So go to bitwarden.com DLN to get started with your free account right? Your free account. Why not? But actually, I think you'll want to check out their premium accounts because there is a lot of cool features in there, like one gigabyte encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F, and Duo, Vault Health Reports, or their own Bitwarden Authenticator for temporary one-time passwords, as well as getting priority customer service. And you get all of this 
for less than $1 per month. That's right, less than $1 per month will get you all of those features on top of the fantastic password manager that it already is. So make the smart move like many from the community have and go to bitwarden.com slash DLN. This lets you get peace of mind for your passwords and other sensitive data while also supporting a company that truly gets open source. Sign up for their less than $1 per month premium account to let them know that you appreciate them supporting open source and supporting This Week in Linux. So go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started. And thanks again to Bitwarden for sponsoring This Week in Linux. Up next in the show, we have an interesting topic to talk about related to Linux Mint and a bypass vulnerability for their screensaver. So there was a screensaver security flaw that was discovered. And you know how in the Hollywood they have these uh, demonstrations or scenes of having someone just bang on a computer as if that somehow works and you get through and hack through the system just by slamming on the computer keys and all of a sudden you're in? Well, it turns out that that's not as ridiculous as it originally seemed because, well, that's pretty much what happened with this screensaver bypass bypass vulnerability. So a a couple of kids were playing on their dad's computer and they were making jokes about how they wanted to hack his Linux desktop and they just randomly clicked everywhere. And he says he was standing there behind them looking at them playing and then the screensaver just, the core dumped and they actually got in. They were on the desktop. So I guess they are a little bit sort of hackers in this sense. Um, He says that he thought it was a unique incident, but they managed to do it a second time. So I'd consider this issue reproducible by kids, he says. He says that he also tried to recreate the crash on his own, but with no success, maybe because it's required, but you know, four hands typing and using a mouse randomly to make it work. So I think that's pretty interesting. Overall, this is an interesting situation because uh, this is a a flaw that was predicted like 17 years ago, something like that, by the developer of X Screensaver, which uh, Cinnamon Screensaver is a uh, a fork of known screen, GNOME Screensaver, which was a fork of X Screensaver. However, over time, GNOME Screensaver kind of became less uh, connected to X Screensaver, and I'm pretty sure that there was no code at all towards the end of, of GNOME Screensaver, but I also don't think that GNOME Screensaver is used anymore thanks to the way they restructured their system, and we'll talk about that in a second. But uh, I don't know when the when when uh, GNOME Screensaver was forked into Cinnamon, so maybe it is a fork of X Screensaver, maybe it isn't. I don't know. It depends on, you know, the history of when all that stuff happened. Because... As what's always lovely is nuance is important to this context. Anyway, so the the lead developer of Linux Mint, Clem, has is, is, uh, posted on the issue that they have tracked down the issue to libcaribou, and it's a on-screen keyboard component that ships with Cinnamon. The bug occurs when the user presses the E key, well, a specific type of E key, on the screen, the on-screen keyboard, and it's the uh, Latin letter E with a, a macron on top. I'm not sure if you're supposed to cause macron or not. I'm not. Whatever. It has that key. If you hit that key, which I guess they hit stuff randomly so many times that they randomly hit that key, creating this bug bypass. So if the on-screen keyboard is open from the screensaver, the bug crashes the screensaver instead, allowing users to access the underlying desktop. So as I said, this has been uh, predicted many years ago by the developer of X Screensaver, which is Jamie Zawinski. Sorry if I said that wrong. Usually goes by JWZ. 
And uh, in 2004, he cre- he uh, predicted this problem would happen depending on how it's implemented. Uh, he's the creator of X Screensaver, and he said in a blog post that he posted recently once this information came out that uh, he clarified like uh, referencing what he talked about in 2004 and why it happened and all that sort of stuff. And I think it's interesting overall because he says that if you're not running X Screensaver on Linux, then it is safe to assume that your screen does not lock. And that is interesting because there are some contrary comments about that by a lot of people. And specifically, uh, there were some people on Reddit talking about how systemd logindy nowadays handles session locking for a lot of different DEs, uh, including um, GNOME, uh, Plasma, and a bunch of other stuff. And also Mate has its own Mate screensaver, but they also have support for logindy. So depending on if the distro uh, compiles it or not, which is you know more and more likely in the future that systemd logindy is going to be replacing the usage of these types of screensaver things because well it just it's um, more reliable for session locking in this case. So I had a question that I wanted to put out to the audience, all the Twillers out there. What do you do? You use a screensaver, and if you do, uh, which one do you use that you know of? Like what DE do you use? That kind of thing. Uh, if you don't use a screensaver, do you use screen locking? And I'm curious because I haven't used a screensaver in, I don't know, a decade, maybe longer than that, because a screensaver to me doesn't really have a purpose anymore because their original purpose was being created to avoid burn-in. So instead of having a screen that is constantly on one image, and then when you go away from that screen, it's just, it's burned in like a ghost image. Uh, that's no longer a problem, really. I mean, it still kind of happens, but it's very rare. Like a plasma TV could do it, but so uh, I don't think it's necessary anymore. So I always disable screensavers. Now, I understand why screen locking is still necessary, especially people who work in a big office and that sort of stuff. I get why that would be needed, but screensavers, eh, I don't know. Especially since like, GNOME and Plasma and all and a bunch of other ones are using systemd logindy to just do screen locking and just skipping the screensaver stuff. I think that's a better approach. And I'm curious, you know, do you use a screensaver? If they did go away completely, would you be disappointed? Would you want a screensaver? And if so, why? Just let me know in the comments below or on the forum thread at dealinforum.com. Up next in the show, there's some interesting news that came out related to GNOME 40 and Ubuntu 2104, so I thought I would cover it on the show to let everybody know about it, and that is that Ubuntu 2104, or Hirsut Hippo, still don't like that code name. Anyway, due in April 2021, will stay with GNOME 3.38 and GTK3 Toolkit for this release instead of going to GNOME 40 or the GTK4 Toolkit. So some people were hoping that Ubuntu 2104 would ship with GNOME 40 because GNOME 40 is due for release at the end of March and Ubuntu 2104 would be at the end of April. For those who don't know, Ubuntu's version numbers are always year and month. So April being the fourth month of 2021, 2104. And that's how it works. And also for for if you don't know that 20 the even numbers, so 2204 will be an LTS. So every two years, all the even numbers of the 04 version are LTS. Moving back into the topic, uh, I think this makes a lot of sense for Ubuntu to wait until 21.10 for inclusion because GNOME 40 will be coming with a whole new shell design 
which we talked about in a previous episode. Uh, you can check that out. I have it linked in the show notes. It would, it would also be coming with a new major update to GTK with GTK4. And this could be multiple reasons why they want to they don't want to do this because one is the first version of this new shell the is it ready to go is that first version solid to be on a ready to go desktop uh, maybe maybe not we don't know yet but they have to make the decision pretty quickly because of the way that their schedule works so they have a a freeze like a a feature freeze style of release so. Uh, I think this makes a ton of sense for a bunch to do. There are other distros like Fedora that have a faster update cycle when it comes to things like these kinds of things due to their uh, continuous build cadence structure. But Ubuntu does the feature freeze, like I said, which means it's a it's a particular type of release style. It means that by they will be freezing the packages before the release of Ubuntu 2104 so that no new stuff can get into it once that freeze has started. And typically these feature freezes will happen around uh, a little over a month or even two months sometimes from the release date. It is possible that Ubuntu would already have initiated the feature freeze for 2104 prior to GNOME 40 being released. Plus, the modifications that Ubuntu does to make it feel like the previous DE, like Unity, uh, and you know the extensions and all the modifications they do, as well as you know some of the extensions they do to fix bad GNOME decisions, such as breaking desktop icons, those things are also have to be tested to make sure that they work. So there's a lot to do, and one month is not likely a safe timeline to do it for a big production release. And so that makes sense why they would hold back for the... GTK 3 point or the GTK 3 and the GNOME 3.38, that kind of thing does make sense to me. So I get it. And of course, I still will be playing with GNOME 40 on other distros because when it comes out, I do want to do it. But to be fair to Ubuntu on this decision, it does make sense for their particular structure of release cycle. So uh, for those who are wanting to get GNOME 40 on Ubuntu, you will have to wait a little bit longer. Uh, for those who want who don't want to wait, feel free to check out other distributions like OpenSUSE, Tumbleweed, or Fedora. Both have them fairly quickly once it comes out uh, because, well, they update much, much faster in that sense. Uh, but I think that this does make a lot of sense, and, although I'm not going to wait. I'm going to play with it in other distros because, well, I'm patient, but not that patient. If you'd like to learn more about this, I'll have a link to the forum thread about it in the show notes below. So earlier in the topic, I mentioned how the Hearsuit Hippo is not the best code name. I did not like it at all because I had another option and I was hoping they would do it. And now it just seems like a missed opportunity. I know it's not really important, but I just wanted to put it in there because, you know, I'm curious what you think. So my idea for the code name, what it should have been, was Hipster Hamster. That would have been fantastic, I think. So let me know what you think in the comments or in the live chat for those who are watching live. Up next in the show, we're going to talk about something that is very interesting and pretty annoying, and that is multiple distros are considering removing Chromium from their their repos, or at least limiting it in some way, because of announcement that Google has made related to cutting off access to the sync and other Google-exclusive APIs, Google-exclusive, quote-unquote, from all builds except Google Chrome, and therefore Chrome OS and stuff like that. So something that is what the not Chromium, essentially. So everything that is Chromium or Chromium-based will have these things removed. Here's the announcement that Google gave. We are letting you know that starting March 15th, 2021, end users of Chromium and Chromium OS derivatives 
using Google default client ID and Google default client secret on their build configuration will no longer be able to sign into their Google accounts. During recent audit, we discovered that some third-party Chromium-based browsers had keys that were allowed to access Google APIs and services that are reserved for Google use only. Chrome Sync is the most notable of these APIs. Uh, this is a way to say that it's a security thing, but it's not. In practice, this means that a user would be able to access their personal Chrome Sync data, such as bookmarks, not just with Chrome, but also with a non-Google Chromium-based browser. As part of Google's efforts to improve user data security, we are removing access from Chromium and Chromium OS derivatives. Users of products that are incorrectly using these APIs will notice that they won't be able to log into their Google accounts in those products anymore. So essentially, it is a decision by Google to make people stop using Chromium and just use Google Chrome because Google Chrome has the features and Chromium doesn't, and therefore any other app, any other browser based on Chromium that doesn't have its own solution for syncing or bookmarks and passwords and stuff like that will have to use Google Chrome or make their own. So this is an issue because one, it's just well, annoying that they're make, they're claiming it's a security problem and really it's just because they want to lock down their services. Uh, but there's a, a lot of distributions have been talking about this related to uh, what they're going to do and what they, you know, their reactions in general. So Arch, Fedora, OpenSUSE, Debian, Slackware have, and, and others have all uh, talked about like what this will be meaning for them and what they'll do to address it. So we're going to talk about that in a second. But uh, Google has acknowledged that the both Chromium and the Chrome keys are provided in clear that you and so you could essentially take the Chrome keys and put them into Chromium and make the sync work again. But to do so, they say would violate their terms of use. So it is very unlikely that any distributions will do that because of legal ramifications that would likely come from it because, you know, it's Google. So uh, this could have some adverse effects on the users, but also the browsers who are de who are uh, derivatives of Chromium. Now, not necessarily, depending on like Vivaldi, I think Vivaldi has their own bookmark syncing structure and that sort of stuff. But it is worth noting something that uh, if you are a Chromium user and you use the Google Sync for your stuff and you're, you don't want to switch to Chrome and you want to have an open source browser, then you will need to address this fairly quickly because uh, the Chrome functionality has your bookmarks saved on uh, attached to your account, your Google account, which means that if you don't have access to get into your sync, that means you don't give your bookmarks. But more importantly, it means you won't get into your passwords. So if you use the Google Chromium uh, passwords storage management system built into Chromium and you use it for through the sync system, then you will lose access to those passwords. Now, if you use it offline, then that wouldn't necessarily be an issue. But if you use it to decrypt and encrypt through your Google account, well, you'll lose access to it and you'll have to go to Google Chrome just to have your passwords. Uh, so if you don't want to use Google Chrome and you still want to use an open source browser and you like, for example, switching to Firefox or something, you will need to do that fairly quickly so you don't lose access. Now, uh, with that in mind, I do have a suggestion for your password manager, and that is bitwarden.com slash DLN. You can look at the previous spot in the show for more details about that. But moving on. 
So I'm going to give you some quotes from different uh, distributions. Uh, for example, Arch has weighed in on this topic, and they say that it's interesting to know why that they suddenly consider this an, a security issue because Chrome's keys have been in public since at least 2012. And uh, they say that the announcement makes it seem like their Chromium builds have been using API keys with unwarranted access, even though they were given explicit permission to use them provided back into 2013. Also, Fedora has said that they were also too given uh, explicit permission to use the keys in their Chromium builds. And also Slackware has said the same thing. So they would they, they, the developer from Slackware said that they contacted the Chromium directly to uh, get permission to use the keys. And now all of a sudden, they're not going to be able to do it. So depending on the distribution, some of them have a, a different perspective of what they're going to do. One, some of them have decided that they're going to uh, leave Chromium as is for now and just let when the APIs break, they break. Uh, then other distributions have decided to remove the functionality for the APIs so that when it finally does come, it will just, it won't matter. It'll be exactly the same. So, uh, and then the third option is that some distributions have considered or concern or currently considering just removing Chromium entirely from their repo. So depending on which distribution you use, it may result in different situations, but at the same time, it's really the same. It's it's ultimately the same issue. You won't be able to use the sync stuff through Chromium, and you'll lose access to a variety of different features in your Chromium browser. Now, it will still the distributions who continue to keep it in their repos will still be able to use it for browsing the web and all that sort of stuff. It's just breaking API stuff that Google is doing. So it's an unfortunate situation, but it is Google. So not a, a lot of people are surprised by it and also a lot of people aren't because Google is known for its not so ideal decisions in the past. I mean, at one point Google was caught putting proprietary blobs in Chromium, which is the a contrary a direct conflict with their licensing that they promised. So if you'd like to learn more about this topic, I'll have a bunch of links in the show notes for you to check out from different distributions and the different perspective as well as the Google group discussion related to this. So um, also another link you can find in the show notes, uh, in addition to bitwarden.com slash DLN, is uh, the link to the seven reasons why Firefox is my favorite browser. So I think you should check that out because you might have to, or you could just use Google Chrome that's an also an option too. But anyway, links in the show notes below. Thanks for watching this episode of This Week in Linux. If you like what I do here on the show, please like that smash button and be sure to subscribe. If you'd like to support the show and the channel, we have multiple ways to contribute via PayPal, Patreon, sponsors, and many others. You can learn more by going to tuxdigital.com contribute. Or you can order the Linux is Everywhere t-shirt by going to dlnstore.com. This is the shirt that I'm wearing. If you're watching the video version, if you're listening to the audio version, you should definitely check out dlnstore.com either way because there's a lot of great stuff, including the Linux is Everywhere shirt, which conveys the message that whether or not you know that Linux is there, it probably is. So check out dlnstore.com to get all the cool stuff and swag for the Destination Linux network, including shirts, t-shirts, uh, mugs, hoodies, stickers, and even more to come. If you'd like some more podcasting goodness from me, then check out the latest episode of Destination Linux and Hardware Addicts, as I'm a co-host of both of those shows on the Destination Linux network. And if you want to check those out, just go to destinationlinux.network 
to get the, to get subscribed to those awesome shows. And just a reminder, this show is live every Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern or 1800 UTC. So join us in the live chat room, chat room to discuss all the latest Linux canoes each week by going to dlnlive.com. Thanks again for watching. I'm Michael Tunnell with the Destination Linux Network. And as always, keep using, learning, and enjoying Linux. And I'll see you next week for your weekly source for Linux canoes. news.